Welcome to the Glittering Bell Jar, a Harry Potter podcast. I'm Valerie. And I'm Bree. We're two writers and Harry Potter fans. In this podcast, we explore the Harry Potter series by reading it backwards. As you might recall, Harry and his friends discover the power of the Glittering Bell Jar in the Department of Mysteries as it causes objects to move backward and forward through time. We're doing the same thing each week, working backwards through a few chapters, starting with Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Ready to explore Harry Potter in a new way? Then join us in the Glittering Bell Jar. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this, the first episode of the Glittering Bell Jar. As you heard in the introduction, I'm Valerie. And I'm Bree. And we are two writers, we are Harry Potter fans, and we are distant from one another, of course, because it is that time of life. But we are so excited to be here today. We have a brand new idea for how to look at the Harry Potter series, and that is by reading it backwards. Yes, we are very excited to take you through the Harry Potter series in a completely new way, and we're hoping that you will do it alongside us. So here's how it works. Every time we start a chapter, we actually start by going to the end of the chapter and reading the last sentence Mm -hmm. and then starting the chapter. So what you'll hear in the episode as we work through chapters is that I will read the last sentence of the chapter and then Brie will give us a little bit of a synopsis so that you know exactly what happens in that chapter. And the idea here is that we are getting a totally different perspective on the characters, the storylines, how things fit together. And let me just say, we are starting with Deathly Hollows, and starting in the epilogue is a very interesting way to start any book. Yeah, it's completely mind-blowing, and I hope you guys do it alongside us because we are picking up so many new exciting things that I never saw before, and I've obviously never read a book this way or a book series, so it is very fun. It is. Now, I know people who, like, when they go to the bookstore, because there are really still bookstores in the world, and they're great. You should go to one if you haven't been to one lately. Uh, They go, and they pick up a book, and they read the last page first. I am not one of those people. Do you do that? No. That is, like, I'm more of a rule follower when it comes to that kind of thing, and that is breaking the rules. Like, you don't (laughs) do that. It's not okay. It's like writing in your book, which I'm doing in this podcast. I'm writing in these books. I know. Oh, my gosh. It's... (laughs) I only did it a couple times and I felt my hands were like shaking, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I am reading my original series that I got as the books came out. There are lots of sticky notes. There are no notes. In fact, (laughs) I have discovered my copy of Deathly Hallows has both water and sun damage from reading it. And I am so sad because there's nothing you can do about those things. It just happens to books sometimes. But these books are well loved, but not written in. How could you? (laughs) shame. I've been shamed. Yeah, not to go into a different universe, but uh, definitely some shame throwing over here. Okay, so let's just (laughs) jump right in because this is a huge starter pack, if you want to call it that. These first three, or should I say last three chapters, one of them is, I think, the longest chapter in the book, if not the whole series. It's like a behemoth, the the middle chapter we're going to discuss today. But let's just start at the beginning of the end, which is the last sentence of the epilogue. Here we go. The scar had not pained Harry for 19 years. All was well. Mm, Love that. So what happens in the epilogue in case people forgot? Yeah, sure. So it's 19 years later and we get a look into what life is like for everyone in the Harry Potter universe. The scene is set. The kids are all headed off to Hogwarts. Ginny, Harry, their two sons, James Sirius and Albus Severus and daughter Lily Luna are all there together and then end up meeting Hermione and Ron and we see a couple other people and we get this just whole picture of what life gets to be like for them. Okay, I have to interrupt you because how do you know that that's Lily's middle name? I saw it it said it. What? (laughs) 
Isn't that so cool? I've never, I never know, noticed. I the things I caught. <laughs> I've read this chapter so many times that I have never noticed that. It's on the first page. What? Oh my gosh. I'm looking now. I have to double check. I'm not that oh, wait, I don't or maybe I Googled you. it. If you Googled it, that's fine. But like, that's, a, that's so cool. <laughs> uh, that's so cool. But what is with this family and their alliterative sounds? It's very tough for kids to have names that are like that. <laughs> Okay, so I don't know if it's true. It was sort of this urban legend that was going around when the Harry Potter books were coming out that J.K. Rowling actually knew exactly the last word that she was going to end the series on, which as writers, Mm -hmm. we know like the last word is very important. I mean, there are some things in travel writing, which is what I do a lot of, where they tell you to pick your last word early or first. Know what final Mm -hmm. word, because that sets the tone and the essence of the final act of your story, which may determine the rest of your story. And so interestingly, what I heard when I was a young Harry Potter fan, younger anyway, uh, was that the final word she wanted to end on was scar. But that's not the way this one ends. This one ends with all was well, which is actually, I believe, a more settling, more comfortable word to end with well. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if that was part of it or if it just didn't work out when she finally sat down to write it. That is super interesting. I have never heard that. And I also am glad that she ended up with well, because it, it just gives us a little bit of a conclusion, a nice ending for Harry. It's like, she's, she's letting us know, like, I'm going to give Harry a rest. <laughs> like I'm giving him some peace. All was well. He's okay, guys. He went through all this. You guys are going to be okay too. <laughs> like Just this finality. Yeah. I mean, especially for us, we grew up with the books coming out. So it was a, mm-hmm. you know, in the films, it was a almost 15 years between the books and the films coming out that we were growing up with Harry and his friends. And so it wasn't like kids today who can just read all seven in like two weeks or whatever and, you know, not have that sort of transition and not have that same attachment. I mean, I remember finishing this book and mourning the loss of a friend. And this this epilogue Mm -hmm. helps let me know that he's going to be okay, even though we're not friends anymore, basically. (laughs) Uh, another thing I found really interesting, just coming back to the 19 years later, is that you and I are actually younger still than Harry, Ron, and Hermione are in this chapter, but not by much. Yes. So we are in our early, <laughs> early mid-ish 30s, and they are 35, yeah. 36, 37 at the time that this chapter happens. So I feel like I'm way behind on having kids because my kids are, I'm, I don't have them yet, and they're not going to Hogwarts anytime yeah. soon. So uh, <laughs> interesting to do that life perspective. I'm almost at, I'm almost oh, finally yeah. through the end of the book. Well, they really had kids young, didn't they? They did. Yeah. I mean, they were together. Like, if you think about it, they left Hogwarts and for several years they didn't have kids. But in their early to mid 20s, they did start having kids. Yeah, because they because James already went to school for at least one year. We think just one year. At least one year. So he's 12. Wow. Yeah. 22, 23. Which I don't know, maybe not interesting to anyone else, but kind of interesting to think about. I guess when you meet the person that you want to marry when you are in grammar school or secondary school, you know, naturally people who get together sooner have kids sooner if they're going to have kids. So that makes sense. Okay, so let's jump into this chapter and talk about it a little bit. I have a bunch of notes. I'm sure you do too. Uh, The first thing I wanted to point out, I've always found it really interesting. Um, This is very right at the beginning is she talks about the family crossing the rumbling road toward the station. Um, And it's funny Mm -hmm. because she has two alliterations. She has rumbling road and city station. But I have been to King's Cross Station. Have you been there? I have. Nobody parks on the other side of that road. The road that's right next to King's Cross, you, you wouldn't park over there. I don't know. I don't. I can't get no. my head wrapped around the geography. So I'm just going to let that be a little bit of magic. Um, because even mm-hmm. the Dursleys, when the Dursleys first drop off Harry at King's Cross Station, it's the same situation. I'm like, where are these people parking? I don't know where that parking garage right. is. 
That's so funny. Yeah, I never thought of that either. But I think I was just so excited to go into the station that I didn't really pay much attention. Yeah. And for those <laughs> listening, if you've never been to King's Cross Station, if you're a Harry Potter fan, you've probably heard of it. There is a platform nine and three quarters entry. And there is a great Harry Potter shop that actually has Harry Potter items you cannot get anywhere else in the world. Like there are some that are only mm. available at the studio tour. And there are some that are only available at King's Cross. Maybe we should go back. I feel like maybe like our one year anniversary, we should just like do it. And we're going to do a tour, right? That's what people do. when they have a podcast. <laughs> yes. I mean, you never need to give me an excuse to go to London. That's my favorite place. Uh, no, me either. <laughs> okay. So what stuck out to you in the epilogue? I think one thing that really stuck out to me was the chapter as a whole was it was almost like what Harry's life would have been like had his he had parents instead of like the experience that he did have. So, you know, you would have had James and Lily, they're coming and then you have all of their friends. Lupin is meeting them. Sirius is meeting maybe with their, you know, their kids, too. Like it just it may have been more joyous like that, like a reunion It was interesting to think of you know, what could have been. Yeah, I definitely got the sense of that when reading this too. I think that it's it's something that she doesn't really address probably because we've just, in reading it in chronological order, you've just come out of a really traumatic finale. <laughs> and so you don't want to bring yeah. all those emotions back up. But I can imagine for Harry, especially, I would actually love to read the chapter of him taking James, his eldest, the first time. Because presumably that's mm-hmm. the first time any of them have gone to platform nine and three quarters since they themselves mm-hmm. left Hogwarts the last time. So it'd be like yeah. almost 20 years that they had been on, in that physical space. And spaces are super important to JK Rowling. The way she writes it, rooms, buildings, they have a mm-hmm. lot of meaning. They come up over and over. So I don't think it's any accident that the finale, the, the epilogue happens on platform nine and three quarters. Well, and I don't know if you caught this, but he said touching the scar absentmindedly so it obviously is a little traumatic being there for him, having his his middle child go back to school. So it almost is like, you know, it was the first child to go because he immediately is like, oh, wow, this is where all this happened for me. And I'm letting my kid like go there. <laughs> like, yeah, that's a really good point. I never caught that. And then, of course, Lily says they're going to be OK. He says, I know, almost like I know because of like the sacrifice we all made kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because we don't get any sense of what they're doing outside of this one little scene that we get to observe. Mm-hmm. But I always thought, and maybe this is in you know the extended universe, the canon or whatever, that Harry goes yeah. on to become an Auror or the head of the Auror office, the head of magical law enforcement. And um, so presumably if anyone's causing trouble, he's going to be dealing with it at some level, which means that maybe not everything is well, but he's making sure everything <laughs> is as well as it can be. Like, I, that's what I've always kind of yeah. pictured in my mind. It's like they, they drop off the kids and then they go back to their jobs. I say normal jobs, but it's, you know, wizarding jobs. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think you're right. I want to say in the Potterverse, like that is what, like, in, or the wizarding world, I guess is what it's called now. But yeah, it might be in Cursed Child or something. Yeah. Yeah. Can't remember. So yeah, that's a good point. He's like, yeah, I've got this. Oh, all's well, because I'm on it, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a very hairy like mindset. I got this. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, a couple other things that I picked out in the epilogue are some of the characters that get brought up here for us. Mm-hmm. So, okay. and this is, I think, a theme that we're going to see a lot is that we follow other characters backwards too. So we're obviously reading Harry's story, but there are several other characters 
that jump out to me mm-hmm. and I think probably jump out to you that we want to kind of like keep a little eye on. So the first one for me, which yeah. is one of my favorite characters when reading the books, was Draco Malfoy. He obviously makes an appearance here. I think it's funny that mm-hmm. he has a receding hairline because my image of the <laughs> Malfoys from the movies is like, there's no hair problems. Lucius Malfoy has no. gorgeous right. locks. Narcissa has a great style. I hope to rock one day when I have a big streak of gray hair of my own. And Draco you know, doesn't have any hair problems, but in the books he does. Um, So even muggle (laughs) genetics play a role for the Malfoys. Um, Yeah. uh, Very, very interesting, very brief, but they kind of um, acknowledge one another. And I think that's the most you could have hoped for these two, Harry and Draco is a ambivalent acknowledgement after so much animosity between them. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I do love that. And they also, they brought up uh, Neville too, Neville being a professor, which is so interesting. Like he wants to, yeah, our man Neville. Um. <laughs> our man Neville, because you're going to see, we love Neville. Uh, we have talked about this podcast idea for a while before we started recording, <laughs> and we love Neville. <laughs> Neville fan club. Yes. That's our backup. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, but yeah, he's a professor, and I think that's interesting. He chose to go back and kind of protect it, you know, almost like the the protector of Hogwarts or something. Yeah. So I, I would like to read more about that. Like, what's he doing? What's he teaching? And there's, well, there's only one thing he could be teaching, right? Oh, true. Herbology. <laughs> it has to be herbology. I mean, it'd be great if he were teaching, like, Defense Against the Dark Arts, which he he could do. He certainly could do. But I think yeah. it's probably herbology. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. <laughs> Did you catch any? Oh, uh, Percy. But literally, Harry's still like, oof. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, put his hand up. Like, oh, yep, I don't see yep, you. Yep, I thought that was a funny little <laughs> nod. And I'm wondering, because Percy is significantly older um, he's yeah. four years older. So is he there with his wife or spouse? You know, I don't want to assume any gender things. We know, despite recent problematic right. headlines, that J.K. Rowling did have gay characters in the books. Don't want to yes. make any assumptions there. But yeah, could be Percy with his own child. Um, we certainly have Teddy Lupin mm-hmm. and Victoire, who we had not obviously met earlier, but is, I would presume, Bill and Fleur's child. Like, who else would name their child a French name? It's a very pretty name. <laughs> yes, it is. Those are the main ones that I picked out. And then, of course, there's lots of yep. name dropping, literally name dropping, like James Sirius, yep. Albus Severus. Which is so funny. Well, I thought it was interesting that Hermione and Ron named their daughter Rose when it's mm-hmm. Harry's family that has the flower names of Petunia and Lily. Mm. Okay, interesting. Hmm. I wonder if there's more to that. Yeah, I wonder if it's a different character name because I found Hugo to feel very literary and like Hermione loves books. So obviously she's going to be drawn to those kinds of names. And I don't think Ron really cares. (laughs) No, probably not. (laughs) Uh, I was just going to say that I thought it was interesting the names that Harry gave to his kids. Of course, you have James and then you have Albus Severus. And James is actually teasing Albus Severus, which is kind of funny because in real life, right, James and Sirius would have teased Severus. So he's still kind of that same, it's like he picked up some of those traits from his grandfather and from his, you know, great godfather. Yeah, that's a good one. I've not caught that before. Yeah. I also think he probably learned them from Ron and his uncle, George. <laughs> probably. <laughs> he's got a lot Honestly, of that. Honestly, probably the most likely. Yeah. Trickster runs in the blood, in the family. 
Anything else that you caught in this chapter? I did not. That's sort of it for me. I feel like this chapter feels like a beautiful, smooth, like buttercream frosting on a cupcake or something. Um, it goes very uh-huh. quickly, very easy to read and sort of sits separate from the rest. And you'll see as we jump into the rest of the episode that these chapters take a definite turn from this sort of rosy, idyllic finale that we get in the epilogue. Yes. Yeah. It gets pretty, uh, pretty deep and dark fast. So cool. So let's jump back in time uh, for Harry, at least, and talk about the final chapter of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Mm -hmm. It's chapter 36, The Flaw in the Plan. So in this chapter, Harry wakes up in the forest with both him and Voldemort on the ground. Uh, You can hear Voldemort waking up, assuming that he has killed Harry. Uh, He has Hagrid carry Harry to the castle to let the resistance know that he has won and they should surrender. Uh, Harry, in the middle of all that, does wake up And another battle begins, of course, we know, with Voldemort and Harry in one final duel. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. (laughs) And so the final sentence of this chapter, end of the book, really, because the epilogue is standing alone, is it's a little bit long, so stick with me. That wands more trouble than it's worth, said Harry. And quite honestly, he turned away from the painted portraits, thinking now only of the four-poster bed lying waiting for him in Gryffindor Tower and wondering whether Creature might bring him a sandwich there. I've had enough trouble for a lifetime. Love that. That sentence reads a lot like the end of the book, like that final word lifetime. And I've had enough trouble for a lifetime. I love how much imagery is in just one sentence. I mean, I kind of Mm -hmm. wonder, did they leave the empty beds for Ron and Harry in the Gryffindor tower? (laughs) I mean, I I guess they would have. I don't really know what house elves do when students drop out. Well, I guess nobody would be, I mean, I'm guessing nobody transferred, right? So you have the same people going from fifth grade Mm -hmm. up. So Unless someone transferred, we can assume those beds just sat empty. Yeah. It's kind of sad, actually, to think that, like, well, Dean left pretty quickly, too, because he was muggle-born. And then Seamus and mm-hmm. Neville are just alone, the two of them, and they weren't necessarily close. It's kind of interesting to think about these other characters, yeah. things you don't think about. That's what I catch a lot of by reading the book in this order. Think about things I never noticed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it gives you a chance to check the other characters out, which is... Which is cool. Yeah. And we plan to follow a couple of them. So Neville, obviously, we called him out in the epilogue. We're going to follow Neville very closely because in this chapter as well, <laughs> Neville is super, super important. Uh, and then some of the others, um, I mentioned Malfoy, but I think we're going to, I think I'd like to keep an eye on the Malfoys as a family. Throughout the series, yes. they have a hugely interesting arc all the way from the Unbreakable Vow to Flourish and Blots, you know, pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically, I just want to watch the focus of love throughout the entire series because J.K. Rowling loves the power of love. And so it's just interesting to watch that. That's kind of like a thread throughout the entire thing where love kind of comes and saves people at the end of the day. Yeah. And that's obviously important in the final confrontation between Harry and Voldemort, right? Yes. Yeah, totally. One thing you pointed out in your summary that I thought was really interesting is that Hagrid carries Harry. And this was something I caught that (laughs) Hagrid carries Harry to Hogwarts home. He basically carries him home just like he does in the very first chapter of the book. The books, I should say, not the Mm -hmm. book, the books, all of them in Sorcerer's Stone or Philosopher's Stone, whichever one you read, where Hagrid brings Mm -hmm. Harry to the Dursleys. That symmetry Mm -hmm. was not accidental. I think we've seen Mm -mm. from having having read the book so many times in the correct order uh, or in the 
forwards yeah. order. She has a lot of threads like that throughout the books. And this one, it just feels very appropriate, very heartbreaking because Hagrid is devastated that Harry has given kind of given himself up and sacrificed himself, but mm-hmm. very appropriate that it has that symmetry. Well, he and he didn't just take him to the Dursleys. He took him away from the Dursleys whenever he was 17. He says, I only thought it was appropriate that I was the one to do this. That's right. That's right. I always forget that. That's a really important thing. Like Hagrid <laughs> is not a messenger, but more of like a carrier. He literally, literally carries Harry through these major transitions in his life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which is so great. You I think we're going to talk about Hagrid a lot as well, just like him and how much he loves kind of, I don't even want to say the innocent, but what he, what he thinks is the innocent or the misunderstood is a thread you'll just, which we know that, but it's just so interesting to even watch in the final battle and how he, no matter what, he just wants to protect the misunderstood, even if they're in the wrong. You have to wonder what either Tom Riddle or Severus Snape's lives would have been like if they'd had a Hagrid of their own. Like a good-natured semi-parent for these men, these boys, as they were called. In fact, I think she calls them that in this, maybe one one of these chapters we're going to talk about today. She mentions them all as being boys of Hogwarts. That and and only Harry's the one who had someone other than his head of house really looking out for him, and and you know, getting also getting yeah. him in trouble a little bit. <laughs> well, you know what though, I was thinking about Neville, and I kind of wonder, Professor Sprout. If that was more of a a mentor to him, because he did really go into herbology a lot. So because I was like, man, it would have been nice had he received more love. But like maybe he did. We just didn't exactly see it. But we do know that he got into super into herbology. So yeah, so much that he ends up having tea with Alistair Moody to get a herbology book, (laughs) which I loved in both the books (laughs) and the movies. Yeah, I think Neville's another another one of those sort of orphaned young men, whether or not parents were Mm -hmm. truly alive, that shows the importance of having parents and parent figures. And we see for for certain, I would say the only mother figure in the entire series is Molly Weasley. Right. Um, I mean, McGonagall is like a very cold, distant mother, not really motherly at all. Mm -hmm. Whereas Molly Weasley, who defeats Bellatrix, hopefully that's not a spoiler to anybody. (laughs) She is the only mother. And so Harry is at a certain point torn between trying to defeat Voldemort and trying to protect Molly and Ginny um, as these women that he loves, which he doesn't have a lot of women like that, that he feels that for in a motherly way, certainly. Yeah. And I did love that scene whenever we get to see Molly really come into her power or show us her power, because we always see her as kind of like the stay at home mom, right? Where she just, you know, she has a ton of kids and she, you know, she's always cooking and taking care of the house and taking, you know, really watching over these kids because they're all a bunch of troublemakers. <laughs> We we never really get to see her fight. And here we're like, we really see like a mother's love. Like, oh, no, this is not happening. Don't you dare come after my daughter. And she straight up kills her. And she has more <laughs> magic than you would guess from a stay-at-home mom, basically. You know, we don't ever see her demonstrate necessarily advanced or complex magic. And yet she duels right. better than anybody, basically. I mean, she takes over yeah. for three people who are dueling Bellatrix. And she's able to defeat her on her own. Right. Yeah. That's literally just saying like the power of a stay at home mom. You know what I mean? Like she is, she does, she does so many jobs. So she's got, she's got all the power and we finally get to see it, which is amazing. They do, they do more than they ever get credit for. This is for you moms. (laughs) That's right. I I definitely had that marked in my book for sure. What about Bellatrix and Voldemort? Yeah, that's really interesting. What did you catch there? (laughs) 
So in the very beginning, it says she was speaking to him as if he was a lover. It's a quote that's in there. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> like, is she just using that? Like, it's not actually what it means. But did did Bellatrix truly, did she, was she in love with Voldemort? Did they have a thing? Did they actually have like a, a sexual thing going on? I can't imagine that Voldemort was capable of, obviously he's not capable of love, right? That's the whole point is he's not capable of that. But that doesn't mean they weren't intimate, right? It's true. He is technically still a man. So we don't really know. I think there's a couple things I think are interesting. One, coming back to your theme of love, there's a lot of different forms that love can take. So maybe if it's not an intimate or sexual relationship, it's a obsessive, passionate love. Still a Mm -hmm. form of love and maybe a little bit of a twisted and warped one, especially when you know what Voldemort is doing, which is all dark. But I think Bellatrix, what's interesting to me about Bellatrix is she's married. (laughs) Like her husband just disappears. (laughs) Um, I can't remember which book it's in, but we learned that she's married. It might be four or five. And then we just never hear anything about her husband ever again. Yeah. But maybe that's because she took up with Voldemort. (laughs) I mean, maybe. And then at the end, so she thinks he's dead and she's obviously devastated but she finds out he's alive. Whenever Bellatrix falls, it says like Voldemort screams as Bellatrix falls. And you're like, is it because, because it did say they were the last two standing. And I don't think I ever realized like how at the top she was. You know what I mean? Like she was, you know, maybe second or third in command compared to Snape. And she really was probably the most loyal and obsessed with Voldemort. But how obsessed with her was Voldemort. He obviously cared that she died, but whether it's just because of power or because he actually, you know, was upset she died. Yeah. It's interesting. The way she describes that, I just was pulling it up, is his magic is so powerful in the moment that he realizes Bellatrix has fallen. It's like a bomb. It blows everyone away. So it says McGonagall, Kingsley, and Slughorn blasted backward. He doesn't even maybe consciously express a spell to do that. His fury, it says his fury is that powerful. So they definitely have a special connection. Because I do agree in various chapters that there's a lot of more laden, intimate descriptions Mm -hmm. of Bellatrix when she's interacting with or speaking about Voldemort. But I don't don't know that they had the same... I mean, I don't know that Voldemort could love... Like you said, I don't know he could love anybody. But they certainly had a very close connection because she has such strong reactions to him and his is equally strong and almost unconscious. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Speaking of love, um, I did think, did you catch the Malfoys and them showing their love for their son? I did. Yep. That was what made me think that maybe instead of following Draco Malfoy, which we all love and follow on TikTok, aka Tom Felton, Mm -hmm. we could follow the Malfoys as a family unit. uh, Because I do believe that a lot of the decisions that are made by these characters that seem so one dimensional and evil is not Mm -hmm. actually as evil as it seems. It is more driven, maybe singularly minded, but not exclusively from hatred, also including some love for each other. Yeah, yeah, you see that whenever um, Harry's on the ground and whenever Narcissa, she goes over to Harry. So Voldemort is too scared. He's like, he doesn't even want to touch Harry. I think that was one of my favorite lines, which is kind of, Silly for this to be my favorite line, but it was just interesting. Small comfort, though, it was that Voldemort was wary of approaching him. So even even then, you know, you can see that Voldemort didn't quite trust himself and he wasn't as confident as he likes people to believe. But so he has Narcissa go over and 
she realizes Harry's awake and she asks, where, where's my son? And is he in the castle? Is he alive? And Harry says, yes, he's in the castle. And so she, she lets Harry go. She's like, yeah, he's dead. She essentially saves his life and potentially, you know, saves the battle um, just because all she cared about, she didn't care about power. She didn't care about Voldemort. She just wanted her son. Yeah. That's it. And it's interesting that in the way that that section's written, you don't know who Voldemort has chosen to go check. Anyone else, anyone else might not have made that decision. Mm. It's pivotal that it's yeah. Narcissa that's sent there. And in her own way is a very small mother because if she had said, he's still alive, boom, game over. Voldemort's going to attack again. It's all going to go wrong. And she doesn't because she just loves her son. Also, and I think we had discussed this, that we're going to do these sort of rough cut finales for each season when we finish the book of watching the movie. Mm-hmm. In the movie, when the Malfoys are reunited, when Malfoy is brought across the line between the two sides and reunites with his parents right before the final battle, they walk away. They literally just walk away from Hogwarts. They don't even want to be there for the battle anymore. It's a very different mm-hmm. scenario than what happens in the book. It's not really addressed mm-hmm. a whole lot in the book. But it's interesting that in that, it was even more dramatically that they don't care. They don't want to be part of this anymore. They just want to have each other and take care of each other and get away from this. They maybe made a wrong decision. Yeah. So some more speaking of love, you know what I didn't notice? And I don't know how I didn't, but Harry talks about, so it says none of the spells are binding because Harry sacrificed himself. I believe page 738. So I didn't realize. So Voldemort is about to attack, I believe it's Neville. And Harry cast Protego to protect everyone. And that spell, because he's deciding to sacrifice, because he's already sacrificed himself and now uses that spell, it literally protects everybody. Because it literally says, like, see how you can't hurt anyone? It's because, like, me, I sacrificed, I love. You're underestimating love and sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that that was a very interesting way to wrap everything up. I, I'm a little bit, mm-hmm. even having read it a couple more times, I'm a little bit uncertain that the the thesis is quite strong enough. Like, as Dumbledore says Mm. in the next chapter that we're going to move into, this is magic that has never been explored or experimented on. So it's not like there's a foundation Mm. to understand it of like, when you sacrifice yourself for someone else, what that does, because usually when people sacrifice themselves, they die. And the other person may or may not die. This is totally out of the box magic. But I do like that it does end with this being the note that that the hero when he sacrifices himself, it actually has an impact, a magical impact instead of just mm-hmm. a emotional or spiritual one where everyone feels good. No, they're literally protected by Harry. Yeah, absolutely. So let's see. Is there anything else? Uh, Luna makes an appearance. You actually don't see her very much in the battle, but right after the battle ends and Harry has to do his yes, hero, okay. basically a hero's yeah. tour, he sits down on a bench next to Luna and she's like, do you need a break? <laughs> and yeah. I'll make a distraction. Oh, look, a blub- blibbering humdinger, which is very Luna for the final, <laughs> basically the final words that we have from her. Yeah. Yeah. And Luna actually is my favorite character. Yeah. I, I know that about you. And I love that because <laughs> Luna doesn't really make sense to me. My favorite character is Hermione, uh, who's very like logical mm-hmm. and straightforward, which let's take a quick sidebar. Uh, everyone, if you're listening, we're doing something really fun this season. We hope you'll join in. If you recall from Chamber of Secrets, Gilderoy Lockhart has a quiz with a whole bunch of stupid questions about himself. So every single episode, we're going to drop a fact about ourselves related to Harry Potter, and we're going to have a quiz at the end of the season. And whoever scores the highest is going to win a prize. 
price TBD, but I will say that Brie just got us some really cool, uh, we're calling them vintage or what are we calling those sweatshirts? <laughs> yeah. They're like retro, retro. Yeah. they're like a design, like a mock-up of our earliest possible design for the podcast. And I think that might yep. be at least one of the prizes. It's going to be like a impossible to get anywhere prize. So anyway, yes. for episode one, if you're paying <laughs> attention and taking notes, the answer to the question of who our favorite characters are is mine. Valerie's is Hermione and Brie. It's Luna. Okay, so back to Luna and that blivering humdinger. Yeah, you know, I, I love and I would like to watch her more too. Even though she was my favorite character, I think sometimes whenever you're in the heat of reading a book, you just kind of zoom. I'm a very, very fast reader, which can often mean I do kind of, you know, read past a few lines, not intentionally, but some of the details I kind of skip. So it'll be interesting to see all the times Luna is there for Harry, which I do remember, but I'm hoping I find some other ones where it's a moment when she always kind of there when he needs her Mm -hmm. in her own way in her own way she always kind of knows like what to say or what to do to help him yep yep I like that about Luna I think that that's something I'm looking forward to you following and pointing out to me if I miss it (laughs) okay okay do you have anything else in this chapter you want to talk about I think I'm good. Okay, so let's do a rewind. We're going to go backwards to chapter 35, which is called King's Cross. This was a long one. I didn't realize how long. All three of these. We really should have broken this up. That's okay, though. All right, so (laughs) chapter 35. We begin the chapter, Harry waking up. And what we eventually discover is King's Cross. Uh, He is met by Dumbledore and a disgusting baby crying figure on the floor. Here, Dumbledore begins to explain all of his truth. Some of it we already know. Um, There's a few maybe details we learn, but mostly it's Dumbledore just making sure Harry has all the details straight. He eventually tells him, like, you're you're not dead. You do have a choice and you're allowed to go back back to the living. Yep. And this actually, this chapter ends with one of my favorite, I would say Dumbledoreisms, but possibly one of my favorite lines in the entire series. Of course, it is happening inside your head, Harry, but why on earth should that mean it is not real? Mm, Yeah. I love that line. I love that line because I I think that in the muggle world, we often discredit the power of our minds and how Mm. important it is to give credence and value to what we experience in our minds, even if it's only in our minds. I mean, we see this with the ongoing mental health epidemic in America, in the UK. Mm. I know that's been, it's a really important topic that they're talking about over there. Just because it's in your head doesn't mean it's not important to you or that it doesn't have value or it doesn't teach you something, which, as you said, this chapter doesn't really give us too much new information. It's kind Mm -hmm. of like it could all be in Harry's head. In fact, I marked several times where Dumbledore is like, it's in your head. It's your party. It's you. You already know everything that we're going to talk about. But it's still important for Harry and for the readers, us, to have that information covered again and validated because yeah. it's important to Harry. So it should be validated by the character he trusts. I mean, it's interesting that in his purgatory, it's Dumbledore he meets. After he's right. just seen his parents, Sirius, Lupin, Dumbledore is the one, they kind of the, uh, what would they call him? The Oracle, right? The Oracle yeah. kind of character who always has to give or affirm the important information. I also love that sentence. It's just, it really is beautiful. And it is kind of a, a nod to the reader's. Like, hey, we know this is coming to an end, but the imagination, the story, this world we've created, it's our world, and it doesn't mean it's not real. That's very meta of you. I did not read (laughs) it that way, but I love that because it's true. I mean, for the reader, especially when you're physically holding a book, it is all being created in your head. You're Mm -hmm. you're reading words and making it come to life, and that, that, 
valid. It's a valid experience. It's valid to be sad that we're, you know, less than 50 pages from the end of a series that most of us who are of an age that we are spent 15 years getting through. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. I like that a lot. Did you have any more like Dumbledore quotes or any other, anything else you notice in the chapter? No Dumbledoreisms in this one. One of my favorite Dumbledoreisms we won't get to until season seven because it's in mm-hmm. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. But there are some interesting things that I picked up. Gosh, there, there's so much here. It, it, I say so much. It's just really dense. A lot of information being presented in a very short amount of time. So I think it's really interesting. The idea of underscoring that Voldemort, what Voldemort doesn't understand, he doesn't care about, which is a very dangerous mindset to have in any Mm. situation. Like, I'm not going to get political, but one could argue that by not learning about what the other side of this two-party system we live in in America is talking about, you are exposing yourself to not being prepared if you are conversing with someone or something like that, right? Just because you don't care about it doesn't mean it's not important, especially when we just said, if it's in your head, it's important. (laughs) It's in somebody else's head. It's important to them. I love that. That was was like a good quote. (laughs) Yeah. I was specifically thinking with regard to the fact that Voldemort had not even learned about, he had not even considered that the Deathly Hallows might be real. And so he turned a hollow into a horcrux in the Resurrection Mm -hmm. Stone, which is like Mm -hmm. crazy that this one tiny object could be that important in two ways. Uh, it's some actually that's if we're talking about things we're going to follow in the books, I want to follow the resurrection stone because it's not just in Deathly Hollows, it's also in Half Blood Prince because yep. the ring is pivotally important in that that whole book and the trajectory of Dumbledore's life. Yeah. And speaking of Dumbledore, so I did find it interesting to kind of watch his character in this chapter and how he was almost shameful and bashful. And, you know, he. There was nothing more to hide. And so it was all of his secrets laid out for Harry to kind of judge and see. And he he feels bad about it, you know, even in the the afterlife or even if it is just Harry's mind. Harry does realize that Dumbledore had a lot to hide and he would feel shame about it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of actually Dumbledore kind of coming to terms or coming to Harry, I wouldn't say coming to Jesus, but coming to Harry about <laughs> his past and the mistakes he made in his own words instead of in everybody else's words, which is what we've been seeing. If you're reading the book forward, you get mm-hmm. Snape's version of it. You get Rita Skeeter's version of it. You get uh, Alpheus Doge's version of it, but you don't get Dumbledore's version. You even get Aberforth's version, but not Dumbledore himself, Albus. And so this right. is the chapter where Albus gets to uh, basically attest and atone for the mistakes he made and the decisions he made. Yeah. Yeah, although we might be finding out about Dumbledore's secrets. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because uh, as we're recording this, I was sorry, everyone. As we were recording this, it's the week that the new trailer for the new Fantastic Beasts movie came out. And it's called Dumbledore's mm-hmm. Secrets or so Secrets of Dumbledore or something like right, that. Sorry. Yeah, they just call it. IMDb still kind of has it called Fantastic Beast 3, which is definitely not the, t- the title. <laughs> but yeah, I'm really I'm really intrigued by that because uh, the trailer has Aberforth, it has Grindelwald, and these are really mm-hmm. important characters in Dumbledore's story. I was saying when we were talking a couple weeks ago that I really wish we could go back and see Dumbledore's young life. Like, you know, mm-hmm. they did Big Bang Theory and young Sheldon. Can we have young Albus, please? I'm ready. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> so very exciting. Yeah. Okay, the last thing that I would say, I've got all these notes on all the things I'm tracking backward. Uh, The cloak is the other one, because the cloak does begin in the very first book. It is a critically important magical object in many of Harry's adventures and and 
experiences. I mean, it's how he gets to the prefect's bathroom and Goblet mm-hmm. of Fire. It's how he sneaks out of the castle so many times. It's it's an important object, but it's also a hollow. And there are some properties of it that I want to keep an eye on, specifically the idea that it is sort of impervious to magic. Mm-hmm. I think in The Flaw in the Plan, the chapter we were just talking about, they mentioned that that he can just kind of like run through the battle and he's never getting attacked and nothing ever hits him. But I'm curious to explore that a little more because I think there might be some examples where that's not 100%, but we'll get to it when we get there. Well, yeah. So in Dumbledore is talking and I was thinking about all the people that blame themselves for the Potter's death and Dumbledore is one of them. He literally says like, it was my fault. Like I should have protected them more. I had James's cloak, this invisibility cloak. It was actually, it belonged to you. It belonged to James and they didn't have it. But then Harry says, well, the the cloak doesn't protect you against spells. And Dumbledore says, yeah, I guess that's right. So, but we're like, doesn't it protect you though? So we're going to have to watch that. Yeah. I think when we get to the chapter about the Deathly Hollows, which is maybe the tale of the three brothers. I can't remember exactly the name. When we get to that one, I'll be very curious to learn more about the properties of each of these objects because they do Mm -hmm. play such an important role in Harry's ability to defeat Voldemort. Yeah. Where normally I'm like, yeah, yeah, get this over with. Like, I want to know what, let's get some action. Yeah. Cool. Um, Yeah, I think that was pretty much all I caught. But I mean, which is a lot. This was, this was a lot. (laughs) Yeah, that for only being 60 pages, so much happens. Of course, it's the third act. That's how it goes. But it's also the third act of the third act of the third act because we're at the end of the seventh book. Right. I've covered everything that I had taken notes on, but I'm sure there's more that people have discovered by reading backwards, which we would love to hear about. Absolutely. You can catch us on Instagram. Uh, it's belljarpod, Twitter, and you can email us. The email is podcast at follow the butterflies.com. And it's slightly different, you know, different domain because I actually also run a blog about Harry Potter. So you can go there, you can see notes, show notes, links to buy a copy of the books that you can write in without feeling bad, all kinds of stuff like that will be over on follow the butterflies.com slash podcast, or you can email mm-hmm. podcast at follow the butterflies.com. Absolutely. Yeah. Let us know. We want to hear from you. We do. And if we have made any mistakes, if we have said the wrong word, had a continuity error, I mean, continuity errors must be forgiven. We are in the glittering bell jar after all, but we want to hear from you. So <laughs> if you're enjoying it, please shoot us a note, hit us up on social, or leave us a five-star rating and a review if your podcast player has that option. Those are the most important way for new podcasts like us to get listeners, to get out in front of new listeners. So if you have gosh, I don't know, three seconds. It doesn't take long. (laughs) We would really appreciate having a five-star rating and a review if you have the time. That might take a little bit longer than three seconds. But if you have the time for both, we'd really appreciate that. And don't forget to subscribe. So every time we have a new podcast, you will know about it. All right, that's going to wrap it up for today. Thanks so much for joining us in the Glittering Bell Jar. And we will be back with a new episode traveling backwards through the world of Harry Potter very soon. Yeah, see you next time.